Kia ora koutou. welcome friends, uh, good to be with you on our very first podcast, this is the Department of Conversation, I know, I know, it's a play on words. Um, so what we're all about, just so you know, thank you for downloading the very first one, was we're all about conversations. Now we're not about interviews, we're about conversations. The difference is an interview has a host and a guest and the host directs the guest and what to say. What we're trying to do with this new initiative is have conversations with people. We want to bring people in who are interesting, who are controversial, who are fun, who are lively, and just talk to them as you would talk to a friend over a, over a barbecue. Um, where both people can lead the conversation, it can go anywhere, there's no set agenda, there's no set routine as to how, we, how we're going to ask questions, what we're going to ask, we're just, just talking. So in saying all of that, um, you can come find us on Facebook, just look up Department of Conversation, D-E-P-T of Conversation after Facebook, you'll find us. Happy to take your thoughts and if you've got any suggestions for people who you want to hear on, happy to approach them. One thing to know is we are based in Dunedin in Otago. We are proudly based in Dunedin. We are proudly a Dunedin-made product, but we are not made for the Dunedin marketplace. We're made for everybody. We will be bringing people in from all around the country. Hopefully at some stage we will be bringing international people in to our lovely little city down here in the bottom of the world and having interesting, informative and entertaining conversations with them. This is the Department of conversation. Um, if I haven't done so, g'day, I'm Pat Brittenden. I think I probably have, but there you go, we'll do it again. And um, today's episode features Mighty Leadbeater. Now, Mighty is a peace activist, a writer, former social worker. She's been a councillor for Auckland City Council. She's the sister of uh, Keith Locke, ex-Green MP. She's had a really interesting, interesting life, an interesting family. She's been involved in so many of what I would consider formative parts of my life, including through the 1980s with uh, being part of uh, the anti-nukes campaigns in New Zealand. And she has a heart for West Papua at the moment, and she has just written a book about that as well. So this is the very first department of conversation. We are going to talk about everything and anything that comes up and comes in front of us. Thank you again for joining us. Please stay tuned. Please come back. We're going to probably do 10 to 15 of these this year. And then in 2019, who knows, maybe we will continue. Thanks again, and here is Mighty Leadbeater. Mighty Leadbeater, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Very, very first podcast, very, very first one we're doing, live stream broadcast, audio podcast, you are number one. Oh, that's really an honour. <laughs> <laughs> number one in our hearts as well. <laughs> so thanks for coming and joining us today. Um the, the thing we are trying to do is provide a place for interesting conversations. That's really what this whole podcast idea is about. Great. Talking with people who have interesting stories, talking with people who have interesting information, right. talking with people who have interesting lives. Right. And uh, you're in Dunedin at the moment, about I to am. do a lecture tonight, and I, I think am. we can talk about that shortly. But if it's cool, I, I actually, yesterday was Suffragette Day. Yes. Um, so for people who 125 hear... 125 years. So yeah. for people who are hearing this, we are filming this, we are recording this on the Thursday after, so the day after. But just as we're starting, I was going to turn my phone off. See, I was going to turn my phone off because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a good good that way. And I saw a post from your brother, right. right, from Keith. Yes. So for those who don't know, your brother is Keith Locke. That's right, yes. Um, and I just thought seeing Suffragette was yesterday, maybe we'll just start with this. I think Keith will be fine seeing he's had 113 shares <laughs> for me to read this out. He'll, um, be, he'll be totally fine. Okay, cool. Thanks, Keith. If you're not, I apologize. <laughs> there we go. So this is what Keith wrote, and he wrote it last night. Today on the 125th anniversary of women's suffrage, I've been thinking a lot about my late mother, Elise Locke. And I'm feeling Elsie. Elsie, sorry, Elsie Locke. And I'm feeling a little sad she wasn't recognised in the New Zealand Herald's list of 125 women trailblazers. She was the foremost campaigner for women's rights in the 1930s, speaking around the country, editing Working Women, which I'm assuming is a magazine, a mm -hmm. from uh, 34 to 36, and Women Today from 1937 to 1939. And in 1936, she initiated the formation of the Sex, Hygiene and Birth Regulation Society, which in 1939 evolved into family planning. That's right. So she was one of the people who started that, or she started it? She's regarded as one of the founders wow. of the Family Planning Association. It goes yeah. on to say, your brother goes on to say, in more modern times, she was better known as a pioneering writer of children's books with strong women characters. Her 1965 book, Runaway Settlers, has been continuously in print longer than any other New Zealand children's book. For further information, see Wikipedia or Maureen Birchfield's biography of my mother looking for answers. Of course, I remember her mainly as a loving and caring mother. 
We all do. We I all just, do in I my just, family. You know, that just popped up. And one of the things we want to do in this uh, podcast is, um, as you can see, we well, probably can't see on camera, but there's no notes covering my desk. Um, we want to treat this more like a, the way I describe it, what I've already told you, is more like a conversation in a pub over a beer with someone we've just met. Mm. So you and I have met. It's 10 p.m. It's Friday night. We're having a beer. And I'm like, so tell me your story. <laughs> and you tell me your story. Um, and in the spirit of that, that popped up literally in front of yes. me as we were about to start. So I'm like, well, let's yes. start there. Let's yes. talk about your mum. Yes. Let's talk about suffrage. You yes. are a, um, a human rights activist yes. and a peace activist. Yes. So obviously the suffragette movement would be right in that wheelhouse. Of course it is. Of course it is. Because the suffra suffragette movement was founded um, in a movement that was committed to peace too. Mm. You know, that's very much part of it. And that's very much part of my mother's story and my story, I think. We're very much in that anti-war framework. And everything that Keith said there in that post is absolutely right. She was a, a founding person in the New Zealand um, feminist movement as well as a founding person in the New Zealand peace and social justice movement as well as a wonderful children's writer. And it, it is a shame and it does seem like an omission that she was not recorded um, in that 125 women because of that crucial role she played in the 1930s in particular. Is the, I'm correct in thinking that that fold out, that part of the paper was, um, Jacinda Ardern was the kind of guest editor for that. That's right, yes, yes. Well, of course, you know, the other side of things is, you know, you're going to pick 125 women, yeah. you're obviously going to leave some out. But uh, yes, we, we, we would have expected to see our mother there because of her significant contribution from the 1930s on to yeah. the feminist movement. I mean, she was part of the initial women's conferences in the 1970s. You know, she was an early uh, adopter of Tereo. She lent Tereo, wow. uh, you know, at great pains in those days because it wasn't so easily available to learn in those times. So. And what was her lifespan? When was she born and when did she pass? Oh, she died in, uh, she died in 2001. She was right. born in 1912. She lived to oh, be... Wow. 88 years of age. So yes. she's always been here since women had the vote, and that was always a big part of the, the celebrations yesterday. Yes, that's right. But yes. I guess you're saying as well as there was a lot more work to do for women right through that era. Well, that's right. I mean, <laughs> if you think about the Family Planning Association, we take it for granted now, but it was regarded very negatively at the time. That's why they couldn't even call it family planning. They had to sort of give it this strange sex hygiene and birth regulation name because it was and, – and they were subject to all kinds of um, condemnation. Yeah. Breaking down families and goodness knows what. And, so, how, and, yeah. and, and your mum did uh, kids' books? How many books did she write? Oh, um, there are <laughs> just exact numbers. It's hard to say because she wrote many um, school journal articles right. and she wrote – uh, those. <laughs> And a number of non-fiction books, but there are um, six or seven really important children's novels. Of course, the runaway set is Canoe in the Mist, Journey Under Warning, End of the Harbour. Mm. She wrote a lovely little book. Her last little book was called Joe's Ruby, written in 1995. Wonderful book that's been quite instrumental in people... Uh, is literacy learning, actually. You know, right. it was um, one of the nicest tributes she got from... Joe's Ruby was from a, a prisoner... And he'd learnt to read, and that was one of the first books he read. And wow. he wrote her this beautiful letter to say how much it meant to him, because Joe's Ruby is the story of a rook who learns to fly, and wow. he just felt he was learning to fly and learning freedom, just as um, the hero of the story. It's interesting to think that um, 1893, women mm. get the vote in New Zealand, mm. first in the world, obviously. Mm. Um, 1930s, still a lot of work to do for women. We're now 125 years later. We still haven't got equal pay. Yeah, where where does that where do we sit today with women in society, women in the workplace, women in general, and what still needs to be fought for? And I guess the other thing I was thinking is, what else is there? I mean, is there a new movement akin to what the women's movement was in the 1930s at the moment? There have been various waves in the women's movement, haven't there? The 1970s was certainly another wave of, in the women's movement. Um where are we now? I don't know. It's very disappointing, isn't it? We're very disappointing that we still haven't got um, pay equality. That's uh, you know quite uh, shocking in a way. And, and yeah, I don't know. Women aren't represented in the way they should be across all spectrums of society. Some some areas better than others, but we've still got an awfully long way to go. Um, what ne what needs to happen? 
I mean, when you say we've got a long way to go, what what needs to happen? What do we need to do? What can we do to, to uh, I guess, bridge those gaps that you're talking about? Do you have any ideas? Maybe it's too big a question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think one of the things I was a bit disappointed about, um, because to me, reading about the experience of the suffragettes and how the women who campaigned for the vote and... Uh, you know, that there were two sort of other links to what they were doing. And they were part of the temperance movement mm. because they felt that that was a way that women were oppressed by men's drinking. Um, but they were also very much part of the anti-war movement. Right. And to me, it was a little bit of a disappointment in a way that Jacinda, who was heading up celebrating the suffragettes and celebrating the 125th anniversary, was almost at exactly the same time announcing an extension of our military deployments in Iraq and not long before that, our extension of our military deployment in Afghanistan. So, you know, some of the things that are happening in this current climate, um, we you know, looking at a sort of different kind of government and it has got a different kind of gloss on it, but some of the things that are happening are just the same old things that happened under the previous government in terms of our military commitments. And I think it's, you know, you, when we were talking earlier, you were mentioning President Trump. Um, <laughs> it's, we can talk forever about President Trump. <laughs> well, it's, that, that's what it means. That's what it means when we extend our military deployments. It means we are following closely the agenda of the United States, which currently is led by an erratic president. Do we mm. really want to be doing that? That's quite a polite word, isn't it? Erratic. Mm. It's being a bit nice. <laughs> seeing what's coming out at the moment. Um, would you expect to see a change under Labour from National? One of the things, just flipping it backwards and forwards a bit here, going back to the American election, it would seem that um, what became obvious in the last election where Trump was elected is that um, it's not really left versus right in America so much, but it's sort of, uh, I don't know, the word commercial capitalism, It's that, that seems to be the driving factor. You know, that both sides have money in the back pocket, both sides. And actually the ideologies of the left versus right kind of gets lost behind... Um, corporate control. Corporate control. So in New Zealand, springing it back, with the example you've just given is not much has changed with what's happening with deploying our soldiers, hmm. is it actually that we have more of a corporate parliament or is there a genuine left versus right as one would... I guess, hope, so everyone can be represented. I mean, rather than, I mean, corporate may be the wrong word in New Zealand, but they're akin to what the Americans have. Well, yes, I think you could describe New Zealand as a state, you know, state-backed state, state capitalism and, and the corporations and the influence of foreign corporates is very strong in New Zealand. And you think you see our government not daring to threaten those corporate in interests. That's part of it. But Thinking about the military side of things mm -hmm. uh, and the foreign policy, foreign policy and defence policy, New Zealand has had the opportunity to mark out a slightly different foreign policy. And we did that particularly in the 1980s when New Zealand went nuclear free and we stood up to the United States. That's, I think, the significance of what we did in the 1980s when we said we weren't going to have nuclear powered and nuclear armed warships in New Zealand, we were the only country in the Western Alliance that took that stand. And we got a lot of flack for it. You mm. know, we got really heavy and threatened and kicked so on. Of, kicked out of ANZUS? Yes, but that, of course, from the peace movement point of view, was an excellent thing. <laughs> totally excellent thing. The, um, the thing that we didn't get picked, kicked out of, and I think the thing that's really significant, if you look at how things are at the moment, we didn't get kicked out of the Five Eyes Network. Right. So we are still very much tied to the agenda of those Five Eyes partners because we share so much intelligence with them all So the time. for people who, who, I mean, a lot of people have heard that term before. Yeah. But often when you hear about the Five Eyes, it's on a, you know, a news item and it sweeps past well, in 40 have, seconds. So okay. why don't you just give us a background okay, as to so what they, it actually is? Okay, so they might have heard about it now, but it's important to remember that the Five Eyes is a way of expressing a thing that's called the UK-USA Agreement, or UKSA. And that was an agreement signed just after the Second World War, and it was about intelligence sharing. Initially, it was only between 
the United Kingdom and the United States, but it, uh, Canada soon joined, and Australia and New Zealand were linked into it in 1956. Mm -hmm. Now, we didn't know about that. We were never told. This was a totally secret agreement. Uh, researchers began to find out about it somewhere around about the 70s or 80s, but it wasn't publicly released until 2010. 2010, that's the first time we actually saw that document. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's Pretty, very, very recent. It's very, very recent. Um, it was acknowledged a little bit before, earlier than that, but actually declassified. Okay. So I can show, you know, I think I've got a slide in my talk tonight where I can show it, you know, but that's since 2010. And just jumping back a bit, the idea of the five eyes, five countries keeping, sharing, keeping their eyes on things. Sharing intelligence, which right. is so crucial in today's world, isn't right. it? That's, you know... Edward Snowden and all those releases of information through WikiLeaks, that's what he's really helped us to understand, I think. So let's have a look at that, the sharing of information between countries. Um, the sharing of information and the determination really to stay on side with those powers. So not rock the boat. Not rock the boat. I mean, you, you, it, it's quite surprising to me. I mean, Andrew Little was sort of sceptical of intelligence gathering before he's in government, but now, no, five eyes, we've got to cling to the five eyes for our security, so-called. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting when, when people change their positions. I, I, I'm not going to remember who, I think one of them might have been Phil Goff. I'm, I, I don't want to lay the blame on him, but um, how people change their positions when they, like they, they change their opinions when they change their positions, their work positions. I really clearly remember talking about the... Um, the, the planes, the jets we had wrapped up in plastic for so long. And when I'm pretty sure it was Phil Goff, I could be wrong there, but was the defence minister under Labour mm -hmm. would be explaining all the reasons as to why, you know, this is a good thing and why we've kept them and all this. And whoever was the um, shadow minister for National was attacking the Labour minister for that. And I remember after Labour lost that election and those two people swapped roles. And I have a feeling it was a uh, a female MP uh, at the time. Are we talking about the Skyhawks? Yeah, the here? Skyhawks. Well, Skyhawks was actually one thing under the previous Labour government. They did, you know, they did mothball the Skyhawks. Yep. We don't have them any longer. But, of course, now we've got Poseidon planes, which we spent something like $2.3 on. Mm. Um, for what, you know? Yeah. Do we need that? Yeah. And do we need those little planes? Yeah, I don't know. Probably. I mean, I don't, <laughs> the, the, these are the questions. And the thing that I found interesting is when they swapped positions, and I'm pretty sure, as I said, it was Goff became the shadow minister, it was almost as if he picked up the script that was left on that seat and he was using all the same arguments against the new minister that were being used against him. But now he agreed with the views that were being used against him. And the person who had just taken his position as now the minister was using all his defences. It was like they changed their position and then their opinions reversed. It, it, it is hard to take. It is hard to take. Um, yeah, there's just so many examples, really. And, and I think the, the thing that kind of upsets me is New Zealand could play such a good role in world affairs. You know, we had a glimpse of it when we went anti-nuclear. Mm -hmm. And we got an awful lot of respect for that. And we were able to sort of carry that through, even, you know, to things that we did in the disarmament world. And to some extent, we still do. You know, the role we've played in the treaty banning nuclear weapons and so on. That's because we are considered to be a country with some independent voice in international affairs and a country that stands up um, for nuclear disarmament. We still got that reputation. Mm -hmm. But um, there's so many other things we could use our independent like voice for. Well, of course, you know that I'm a, an activist in the West Papua movement, yep. <laughs> and that's one of my key so things. So can you give us, like, I don't want to disrespect yeah. the significance, but can you give us 30 seconds as to what the West Papua situation is for those who don't know? Okay, so West Papua is half of the island of New Guinea. Mm -hmm. It shares the island of New Guinea with Papua New Guinea, which is much better known. West Papua should have become an independent Pacific nation in the 60s, just as all the other Pacific nations got their independence and their self-determination. It was denied the opportunity to become independent because there was a negotiation done between the Dutch, who were the former colonial powers, and the Indonesians under the 
auspices of the United States and with the tick-off from the United Nations. Mm-hmm. So it went to Indonesia, right? So it's been under Indonesian control since 1963. There's been a liberation struggle in West Papua ever since, mostly a um, for many years an armed struggle, very unequal armed struggle with, you know, modest weapons and so on. But more recently, a diplomatic struggle. People want their freedom. They want, they're a Melanesian nation. They want their freedom. They want to be part of the Pacific. They want their self-determination, which they were denied, right? And that is a perfectly just claim. Mm-hmm. And there's endless documentation as to how they were deprived of their right to self-determination. Given an opportunity, so-called, in 1969 in a thing called the Act of Free Choice, but it was absolutely an act of no choice, they were a population of a million, but only 1,022 people were given any chance to take part in that. Wow. And they were done so um, at the point of a gun, virtually. The Indonesian military... So 1,000 people out of a million voted for one of a better word or had, had participation yeah. in the decision. Yeah. You can hardly call it voting, really. <laughs> you can hardly... For, I mean, I, in the book I wrote recently about this in New Zealand's foreign policy on West Papua, I quote, you know, a minister who was present at the time and he talks about the terrible threats that were made to the Papuans who, you know, will vote that way or your tongues will be ripped out. Wow. And I personally will shoot you. And, so, how, and how is how is the situation with West Papua and Indonesia different from, uh, I don't know, straight away I think, I mean, my heritage is for Northern Ireland, Northern mm, Ireland and mm, England or, mm. or a colony of another country. I like the Falklands. It's a, it's, and, well, it's a double con- it's, it, it's double colonialism, isn't it? They were under the Dutch, yeah. so they endured that colonialism, and there was a bit of a nationalist movement forming then, and they definitely hoped, you know, they'd be free of the Dutch colonial rule, and the Dutch were actually, you know, realistically preparing them for freedom, mm-hmm. if you go back to the 60s. Um, and now they're under Indonesian colonial control. And so I assume that that's very strange to go from, you normally are colonised. Yes. And then you're either uh, then you either become a part of that colony permanently, or you become an independent state to go from being a colony to a colony of another country. That's the difference. Yes, although of course we, I've skipped out a bit of history here because the the Indonesian claim was based on the fact that they also were part of you know originally West Papua and the country we now know as Indonesia mm. were all part of the Dutch East Indies. So that's the sort of basis of their claim, but it's not what. The Papuans want, and never was what the Papuans want. So we've said that this has come. We're talking about what else, what difference New okay. Zealand could make as an independent voice. How could we help that situation? Well, we could we could speak up and say that we believe the West Papuans have a right to self determination. That's mm-hmm. what we could do. Right now, there's one country in the Pacific, one brave country, Vanuatu, and it is just saying that what it wants to happen is for West Papua to go back on the list of countries to be decolonised with the UN, right? That's not a terribly radical statement, is mm. it? You know, the, what is the decolonisation committee about? It's about those countries that are still waiting for their freedom. And, and you know, every, the committee meets and discusses their situation and talks to the colonial rulers and, you know, things are brought into the open. So that's the place where this issue belongs. Mm-hmm. Not all that radical. You know, it's not saying freedom tomorrow, it's saying refer it to the decolonisation committee. New Zealand hasn't supported that stand so far. Why not? Why do you want, I mean, <laughs> I, mean I mean, you may not know the answer to that question, but well, I mean, it's, as you say, that doesn't seem, because what you're basically saying is Vanuatu is saying, hey, let's investigate this. Exactly. So why would New Zealand not want to get behind that? Saying, hey, let's investigate this. There's no good reason. <laughs> that, that's the question is what you're asking as well. Why aren't we behind there, this? There is no good reason, but we've just had the Pacific Island Forum and we know um, in the case of um, the countries in the Pacific Island Forum, they are small, vulnerable nations, vulnerable to pressure, vulnerable to, to checkbook diplomacy, if mm-hmm. I can use that word. And we know Indonesia's quite blatant about it, the kinds of pressure that Indonesia puts on the countries in the Pacific to support its position and not to support Vanuatu, if you like. So we know all that pressure coming on. So before the Pacific Island Forum, I put out a media release and said, here's New Zealand's opportunity. We could be the game breaker. We could make a change here. If we spoke out and said, we think Vanuatu's on the right track, 
we'd give confidence to those other Pacific nations. Do you think New Zealand and I, and I, I guess I'm thinking it makes sense that we could be an influence in the South Pacific? Because kind of New Zealand and Australia are the I mean, powerhouses, quote unquote. Right. Yeah. Do you think that the, the nuclear issue in the 1980s, and I, I really want to talk to you about because I was at high school in the 1980s, so it's a very formative part of my life. Sure. Do you think on a global scale, with like us against America, us against Russia, us against China, when I say against, I mean you know, policy-wise and position-wise, do you think we can have an impact on a wider scale with any issues as well? Of course, of course, of course. You know, um, well, we already have, haven't we? We, we? we were one of the nations really pushing for the issue of the legality of nuclear weapons to be considered by the World Court. And that mm-hmm. was quite a significant decision because the World Court came out basically saying... Yes, they are illegal. They put a few little qualifications around it, but you know these things do count. Um, there was a time in the in the nineteen nineties mm-hmm. um, when we were able to uh, be a mediator for the terrible situation that was happening in Bougainville at that time. Right, and that was only possible. I mean, we didn't always play a good role there either, but we did play a good role in, in the you know, getting together the two rival factions from Bougainville. And the only reason that we were able to act as a mediator in that situation is because we were considered to be relatively independent. I wonder as well, I mean, there are some countries, Australia comes to mind, because we don't have any borders with anyone, that gives us this isolation which might help give us this independence. In other words, we don't have a trade barrier with, you know, with... uh, uh, Canada at the top and Mexico at the bottom that we have to worry about. So that's probably something that helps. I mean, there's probably mm. not very many countries like us no. that it's us and no one else on our on our um, you know land border. Well, one of the things you know we, we were threatened during the eighties when we went nuclear free. We were threatened with all sorts of terrible consequences. Didn't happen. Yeah. Economic consequences never happened. Such as. Oh, you know, America wouldn't trade with us. We'd, you know, what would we do? Mm. We never suffered any economic We'd just backlash. We'd seen it all to the UK. <laughs> <laughs> um, well. The, the 1980s, fascinated. I have in, in, enduring memories of some things. I have memories of uh, small rubber rafts, small rubber boats with, you know, big engines on the back of them cruising up beside humongous big um, warships True. to stop people coming in. When you were doing your uh, protest, your um, advocacy, your mm-hmm. whatever in the 1980s against nuclear-free, mm. being nuclear-free in New Zealand, were those the kinds of things you were okay, involved so, with? So I was involved mostly with the campaign for nuclear disarmament. Okay. And we worked very closely with the other organisations. It was a you know very loose kind of thing. At one point there were even three hundred peace groups in the country. Oh really? <laughs> it was amazing. Three hundred peace groups all focusing on the nukes? Yes, mostly. Wow. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a very grassrootsy kind of movement. Yeah. And Auckland had many, many peace groups and around the different suburbs. So you were specifically focused on disarmament? I, I well I represented I was spokesperson in yep. the, in that period of time for the campaign for nuclear disarmament, which is one of the sort of larger and stronger groups but we work closely with the peace squadron and we work closely with greenpeace of course mm-hmm. so when the peace i was a landlubber really <laughs> when the peace squadron went out on the water in the early morning we'd have planned a march through queen street right either that lunchtime and often on a friday night as well so organizing those land-based activities was far more my particular role but what really stands out when I remember it is the size of those marches we'd have marches up Queen Street of one particular year um, I think it was Hiroshima Day in 1983 I'm pretty sure I'm right when the Texas came in we had uh, something like 25,000 walking up Queen Street so they were massive marches yeah. So when you say the Texas came in, that's the warship. Yep, that was a nuclear-powered warship. So we had it came in around Hiroshima Day, which sort of seemed like a particular insult at the time. We had boats coming in. Yes. Did we know they were had nukes on them, or were we saying don't come in? If what was the actual thing that uh, we knew, and what was the position? Well, of course, the United States always said never confirm, neither confirm nor deny. Yeah. But we would know from information from our peace researcher friends that yep. they were definitely nuclear weapons capable right 
never really knew whether they had the nuclear weapons on board, but our position over the years became opposition to any vessels which were capable of carrying nuclear weapons. Okay. So they said, we neither confirm nor deny, we said, if in doubt, keep them out. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. It's interesting because I, I can't remember the exact time frame, but it feels like very recently, and I want to say in the last five years, we've had a similar situation where we've had war games, warships in our waters, and it's been a similar thing, but it feels like maybe it's reversed slightly that we've gone... We have had an American warship back here recently. And yeah. and it sounds like a bit of politics, but they've said we would never enter your waters with nuclear weapons on our ships, but we can't confirm or deny whether there are nuclear weapons on the ship. Things have actually changed since that time. You know, they, there is no, they no longer deploy... And we can know which vessels are actually capable of carrying okay. which nuclear weapons and which are not. So I, it didn't breach our nuclear policy okay. in that way. But in 1985, you know, that was the really critical time, the beginning of 1985. So that was Rainbow Warrior year? No, Rainbow Warrior year, but I'm talking earlier than Rainbow Warrior. Okay. Rainbow Warrior is July. I'm talking January Okay. 1985. This is the critical time from my point of view. Right. And that was the time when the United States decided to test the Longy government, which had said it was going to have a nuclear-free legislation, it was going to you know, be opposed to all nuclear weapons coming into the country. So the United States decided to test it, and they decided to test it with a vessel which we now know as the Buchanan. I think initially we didn't actually even know which one it was, but we knew which class it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we knew that it was capable of carrying nuclear weapons. And we got wind of all this visit being planned in January, which is always a difficult time for protests because a lot of people are away on holiday and so forth and so on. <laughs> but nevertheless, it was a really vital time. North, Northland beaches or the safety <laughs> of the world. Northland beaches. Well, the safety of the world won. Yeah, yeah good. <laughs> the, safety it's the, it's the right choice. <laughs> the safety of the world won on this occasion. Yeah. Amazing, really. I, I still think this is amazing because what we decided to do when we got all our facts together, was we thought, well, we've got to do the traditional Auckland thing. We've got to have a march up Queen Street to our Tear Square. And by the time we decided, we only had about two days' notice. But we got the word out, and 15,000 people flooded into our Tear Square to say what I just said to you, if in doubt, keep them out. And the Labour Cabinet was meeting, and the caucus was meeting, and all these things were going on. But I think with the, that grassroots support for a position of saying no, yeah. the government had very little leeway. I think something that will make it even more interesting. Jace, can you Google population of Auckland 1985? <laughs> I'm interested just to, to see what it would be the equivalent of for people who are, who are having a look. Gosh, um, can you Google that? <laughs> yeah, I, I think you will. I mean, I'm thinking if there was half a million people in Auckland, then that's the equivalent of a march today with 50,000 people. You know, mm. three times the population, three times the numbers, which is, is huge. So so your role was more on shore, mm-hmm. organising in the office, organising the people, and you called it the Peace Squadron. Those are the guys out in the little rubber raft dinghies zipping around. Right. George, Squad- uh, George Armstrong was the, one of the founders of the Peace Squadron. I think he was the one who... You know, had the original inspiration, but it was amazing how that picked up too. Yeah. And people were incredibly brave, incredibly brave. <laughs> One guy jumped up on a submarine, a guy called Philip Sherry, you know. <laughs> not, the, not the Philip Sherry. Oh, the no, I've got the wrong name. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, gosh, that would make for an interesting news item. Sherry was a surname. Anyway. I'm remembering the wrong first name. Mr. Yeah. Sherry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. Um, you, you. We talked earlier, and I really want to hear the story about this. There was some involvement. You had some connection to the Rainbow Warrior, including a connection to well, the, I was, the, the perpetrators. Not a personal connection. You that you 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 saw them around. I'm not saying you knew them or interacted with them, but you know. Well, as I said, I was working quite closely with Greenpeace in those days. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So at one point I was asked I was going to a meeting at that stage we were also involved in solidarity for the Kanak people of New Caledonia mm-hmm. because we were part of a movement that was called the Nuclear Free and Independent Pacific Movement which still exists of course because it's a movement um, 
calling not just for the Pacific to be nuclear free, but also for the remaining areas in the Pacific that are still under colonial control to have their freedom. You know, so obviously we were very much focused at that stage on some of the struggles that were happening in New Caledonia. And my Greenpeace friends told me that there was a, um, a French woman in their office who was interested in going to this meeting. And that turned out to be Christine Gabon, and I gave her a lift to the meeting. So now, <laughs> she wasn't one of the two. She wasn't, we, no, she wasn't one of the... Dominique Prier and Leigh Mafau were no, the, no, the, the no. perpetrators. No, she was an early infiltrator. Right. She infiltrated Greenpeace to find out information about the Rainbow Warrior and its voyage wow. and let the DGSE know that information. So she was one of the spies? Absolutely. Who was doing the groundwork yes. for the yes. attack? Yes, yes. Because I'm interested, as we're, as we're talking, I'm thinking as well, um, obviously there was a lot of focus on the US Yes. With uh, keeping weapons yes. out of the out of our oh, but waters. also on France. Yeah, but on France as well, because that was was it Muriroa Atoll. Yes, is that right? Yes, yes. And so there was actual nuclear um, uh, testing going on in South Pacific. Of course. So until nineteen ninety five, the French were testing in. The so where, was there like a a focus? Was that Greenpeace's focus more kind of going out there because that's why they they bombed it so that they wouldn't go out and cause mischief. Absolutely. The the voyage of the Rainbow Warrior was very interesting because it came into Auckland Harbour, having just been in the Micronesian island of Rongelap, mm -hmm. where the people were suffering because of the radioactive poisoning, and no one would, the US would not attend to these people, and Greenpeace did a, humani a really wonderful humanitarian mission in taking the people off the island of Rongelap. There's a very, very you know, sort of poignant pictures of these people having to leave their island because it was absolutely uninhabitable and go and live elsewhere. And no one would help them except Greenpeace. Is there still work for those groups? Like, it, I don't want to say they've done their bit, <laughs> but it seems that, you know, the protests in Queen Street or up the main streets, those were a thing of the past. Are there things we should still be getting into today? They're not, no, they're not entirely a thing of the past. If you, if to you, that extent? Well, 2013, I think, when we were faced with the extension of um, the GCSB, you know, there were, right. and, you know, stronger powers for our spying, mm. spying on people. There was mass uprising and quite large marches at that time. Yeah, right. And there have been quite large marches against M the Maybe because my, TPPA. Format <laughs> my formative year were the 80s. I remember 1981, even though I was only eight. Right. I remember going to Eden Park the weekend before the Springboks game. I remember the razor wire. You know, I remember the, the field being set up in preparation for that. Um, watching Auckland play there, and then it, so maybe right. maybe I have a um, heightened sense because it feels like the whole eighties was filled up with protest. Maybe it was. Maybe, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm wondering groups like pe uh, peace groups now at the moment they're fighting for what more people than causes, more um, West Papua than you know being nuclear free. Uh, is that where the focus is today? More on people than on on those bigger issues. And what about Greenpeace? They're more focusing, it seems now, on, you know, uh, climate change and, you know, whales than than the nukes. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to belittle it by saying this. I'm just trying to go, where is their place today and what are they doing today compared to what we're talking about in the 80s? Greenpeace, just in the last few days, has come out with a really important um, report about um, palm oil You're right. and deforestation. Yeah an issue that we have to face this is in the climate change yeah, yeah. <laughs> area, well, and, and animals I mean that's where the orangutans get deforestized lots Absolutely. of animals well. yeah, yeah, yeah. and not only the orangutans in Indonesia but also in West Papua where there are no orangutans because mm. it's part of the Pacific the palm oil firms which have deforested so much of Indonesia are now looking to West Papua where there are pristine rainforests the, you know, Greenpeace calls them the paradise forests because it's forests in West Papua and Papua New Guinea because they're the same island, you know, together make up the paradise forests that are on the same sort of level as the forests of the Amazon. And we face losing those mm -hmm. because of palm oil. So Greenpeace's report looking at the rapacious palm oil companies and their links 
to what happens here in New Zealand in terms of the import of palm oil kernel for our intensive dairying mm. is pretty important, I think. We should really be taking, taking a lot of notice of that. I mean, I've got a vested interest because I want people to understand about the issue of deforestation yep. and what that does to the people of West Papua right. who lose their livelihood and are facing genocide you know, because of it, but um, because of that and all the other exploitation and human rights abuses that they experience. But also in Indonesia, you know, and Greenpeace have looked at, looked at that holistically, and this is a very important report and something we need to take note of because we're part of that, really. What comes here in terms of palm oil kernel and the palm oil products that we receive here and just about everything we... I'm sitting here thinking, you, it's so fascinating talking to you. You've been involved in so many areas <laughs> of life, you know, people of West Papua, you know, talking about the suffragettes, your family, what they've done, you know, um, being nuclear free. There's so many things. Do you think there's a uh, danger, quote unquote danger, mm. of someone hearing this kind of conversation and going, oh, it's just too much. What can I do? Like if someone was sitting there thinking, how can I help? What, what would you say to them? Because there does seem to be so much work to do. Like, I'm interested in how you focused in on where's Papua, you know? Um, Pākehā woman from New Zealand, where's the connection? How did you go there? Why isn't it focusing on, you know, Group X in the local community? Or why isn't it focusing on Palm? Or, like, how did you get into that specifically? And how does someone listening now going, how can I help? There's too much. Oh, okay, that's two big questions, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, let me see, let me see. Um, well, one thought comes through my mind when you say Pākehā woman working on West Papua. Um, what's happening now, and I'm very happy to see it, as far as the West Papua Solidarity Movement, is a lot of the leadership, both here in Aotearoa and around the Pacific generally, is shifting, you know, so it's Pacifica and Māori people are taking a much stronger ownership of this issue. Uh, there's a group up in Auckland called Oceania Interrupted, mm -hmm. and that's a group of Māori and Pacifica women. When they do an action, they don't exclude us non-Pacifica people. Right. We can go along, but in support. So their performances are strictly for Maori and Pacifica women. So when you say they're taking more of a lead, is it because there is more power coming from an indigenous group of people yes. talking to an indigenous group of people yes. in West Papua? Because they understand it. Right. They understand that struggle. They've and obviously colonisation as well. They understand yeah. colonisation and they feel that sense of the, you know, uh, because one of the campaigns for West Papua is bring West Papua back into the Pacific whanau. Mm. You know, so that's a really strong trend and I think it's it's echoing, you know, it's echoing in our parliament with the Māori and Pacifica MPs who are supportive of the West Papua issue. So far they haven't managed to push that all the way through to policy change at government level, but they're certainly trying, I think. So would the only policy change they need to get to is to basically support it going to the UN to be quote-unquote looked at? Is that, that the only support? Well, we that, that's a key campaign right at the moment. Right. Yeah, that's a key campaign right at the moment. But there are many others, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the West Papuan people. But what is it for you personally? I mean, how do you get involved in that particular uh, okay, desire so, for help? Okay, so there's a, there's, a, there's a clear progression as far as I'm concerned because I'm talking about the 80s and I'm talking about <laughs> my involvement in the nuclear free and independent Pacific yep. movement and meeting Pacifica people and understanding Pacifica struggles. The thing that captured me was the movement for freedom for East Timor, of course. That was what dominated my life a bit in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And uh, people will know East Timor is today an independent country, right. Timor-Leste. And the reason it is uh, an independent country and the reason it did manage to get its freedom from Indonesia is partly because of the strength of international solidarity. So I do believe in international solidarity. Mm -hmm. I do believe it was a, one of the factors, not the only factor, or two, other very, two or three other very important factors, the strength of the resistance in Timor itself, which was amazing, you know, throughout all those years of Indonesian military control. 
in the and growing support for the East Timorese people in Indonesia helped them an awful lot. Mm-hmm. Plus, of course, the fall of Suharto, the dictator, kind of came at a crucial time. Right. And, you know, they were able to sort of make their way through, but only in a really difficult and horribly violent way because, mm-hmm. you know, they had to go through a cataclysm and the end of 1999 when Indonesia was still trying to hold on and unleashing militias against them. And it was, you know, pretty ghastly way to achieve their freedom, but they mm. did eventually achieve their freedom. So East Timor, having achieved its freedom, people like me who'd been involved with that struggle were kind of confronted with the fact that it wasn't the only case of human rights abuses in Indonesia. People would say, oh, why aren't you doing anything about West Papua? Right. <laughs> so it was a natural progression is what you To saying. me it was a natural progression, yeah. And what about those people who are um, listening or watching right now um, going, what can I do? And and I'm thinking about someone thinking, I want to be involved somewhere. Okay, okay. Well, one of the things that our West Papua network around the country is doing is hosting um, a West Papua activist yep. next month, October, Wenceslas Fatterborn. And the reason we've invited this particular young man, he's a filmmaker, mm-hmm. um, but he's an environmentalist and a human rights defender. He's in Geneva making representations right as we speak. But um, when he comes here, we're hoping that he'll also help us to understand more about the environmental impacts of deforestation in West Papua because that's a key campaign for us because that's where we come in. We we use the palm oil. Mm -hmm. We also bring in quila for our decking which all comes from West Papua and from their pristine forests right wow so one thing we can do you know is start a campaign and really keep it strong against using quila in our decking and for our outdoor furniture so that we're not contributing all the time to the despoilation of West Papua and as we do that the issue becomes better known the pressure gets a bit stronger on our government and you know I am hopeful Mm. I'm disappointed and a bit angry at the moment that they're not doing more, but I'm still hopeful that we will see change at that level. And you're saying some of the Māori and Pacific Island MPs are are actively making movements for the push. When I went to Wellington, because I did a national tour with my book, See No Evil, New Zealand's Betrayal of the People of West Papua, which was just out by, published by Otago University Press, mm-hmm. <laughs> great Dunedin publisher, um, Dunedin-based publisher. Uh, When I did the book tour, I went to Parliament and spoke to quite a group of MPs, and one of them was Louisa Wall. Mm -hmm. And after the talk, she was interviewed by Radio New Zealand, and she said she believed that the issue of West Papua should go to the Decolonisation Committee. Right, which is the UN group that we're just saying, Mm. have a look. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, that's that's what Vanuatu is saying. Vanuatu is determined to take a resolution calling for that to the UN General Assembly next year. Right. And they're being totally realistic. They're not doing it this year because they know they're going to need more time to get the support they need, but they're determined to do it. Now, you've mentioned um, Otago University there. Uh, if you are watching this live stream or if you pick this up on Thursday the 20th of September, which is today... <laughs> You're speaking at the university tonight, uh, public lecture uh, in Archway 2 Lecture Theatre. Archway 2 Lecture Theatre, it's free to get in between 5.30 and 7. So that's uh, 5.30 till 7, Thursday 20th September, which is today, as we record this, um, Archway 2, and you are talking. And this is, and I actually think this is a fascinating topic for, for the geopolitical scene. So I know we're uh, going to wrap up shortly, Ash, but before we do that... I wouldn't mind to talk to you a little bit about the subject matter. The, the lecture is entitled Informed Dissent, Challenging State Secrecy. And um, I guess we've talked a little bit already about the five eyes, etc. So you can see how that's sort of in your in your bag. Absolutely. <laughs> so, but I think about informed dissent, what's happening in America at the moment, about the, the groundswell of protest. I mean, I've never seen protest in it. Well, and that's actually, I'll retract that because there's been lots of protests in America over the decades. But of recent times, um, other than perhaps the Iraq war, there doesn't seem to have been a uh, mm. protest like there's been of recent times over the, the, the president 
in America and the dissent that's coming through there. But give us a bit of a rundown as to your perspective in um, the lecture tonight, informed dissent, what it's all about and, and, okay. and what people are going to learn and, and, and maybe we can talk more about that to, to the political scene today as well. Okay, well, since it's entitled the Archibald Baxter Memorial Lecture, mm -hmm. I am going to start talking a little bit about um, the role of conscientious objectors. Uh, I'm, I'm starting really with the Second World War and the role of conscientious objectors in the Second World War because yep. I think that was a, actually quite a good example of people not accepting the state says this, therefore must be right. You know, people challenging the state against quite considerable odds because, you know, during the Second World War all kinds of um, uh, restrictions were imposed on people. You know, censorship was incredibly tight, people's ability to organise and dissent was just sort of completely taken away from them. Sort of, uh, the, the, the pitch being sort of for the greater good. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the conscientious objectors challenged that. Yeah. And they challenged, who are we fighting with? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, what are the goals? Mm -hmm. it, it raised a whole lot of issues that even the Labour government itself had been raising only months earlier. You know, suddenly you get into the war situation and it's all freedom to dissent or speak out or put an alternative point of view is taken away from people. Important magazines with a different point of view are suddenly censored, you know. Right. <laughs> so I think the conscientious objectors have a lot to teach us then about the, the courage of standing up against the state and answering to their own conscience, but not a little bit more than their own conscience, I think. Their oh. own prepared, prepared to put out a different perspective and to research and find out what was really going on. And of that era especially, yes. you know, labels like coward and gutless and Absolutely. being ostracised from society. Absolutely. And more so than if someone did it today. So yes. actually yeah. of that era... Yes. I was going to say very brave, but what I'll say is you have to have a bit of a backbone and, and really be uh, you know, assured in what you want because you are going to become an outcast the next day, possibly for the rest of your life. Oh, some, some of the conscientious objectors suffered seriously all sorts of consequences long after the war. That's mm. absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was an interest, it's interesting too, you think of it as being people who were um, – religiously motivated, but it was broader than that. Right. You know, and the um, campaign against conscription brought in a broader range of people again. So, and they worked together in an interesting and lively way and mm -hmm. held important meetings and got banned and, you know, tried to speak out in Pigeon Park in Wellington and got arrested and got sent off for hard labour and, you know, really inspiring stuff when you look back on it. And I'm, then I move on a little bit, and I'm going to spend a bit of time to tonight talking about Owen Wilkes, because he was a very important peace researcher. Mm -hmm. New Zealand was incredibly lucky to have Aotearoa, New Zealand was very lucky to have Owen Wilkes and the contribution he made to our understanding of our commitments, you know, the kind of things we were getting ourselves involved in in terms of military commitments to the United States. He, you know, exposed a whole series of agreements and commitments that we made to bases in New Zealand and we as a result of his work we had a really strong anti-base campaign movement way back in the 60s and I think that sort of carried on really again if we're talking about the 80s right because you mentioned you know Waihopai earlier on. And yeah, we haven't talked about this one, but off there, I, I yeah. know Adrian Leeson, who was one of the Waihopai three, and yes. you've been involved there as yeah. well. Yeah, well, thanks to the work of people like Owen Wilkes, we understood what Waihopai was about, and we understood that even before it was built, mm -hmm. that it was going to be collecting information and funneling it off to the... Uh, to the United States National Security Agency. We understood that even before it was built. So we had protests at that base. You know, Adrian Leeson's one was a very important protest, mm. but we had earlier protests going right back to 1987, 1988, before the base was even built. Right. Which is pretty impressive, really, yeah. When do you, when do you think, as, as a peace activist, when do you think it's appropriate to use military and be involved militarily. And I'll, and I'll let me context this, but I know Adrian Leeson well enough. 
um, I actually was involved with him in a another conversation called Elephant TV, where we looked at war, and we looked at it from a um, from a kind of church perspective, where we had um, some church people who believe in just war, and we had some church people who believed in peace. So we all talked together. That was that was the conversation, and I remember saying to AD, one of the guys we were talking to was in Iraq at the time as a medic when AD took down the spy base. And for those of you who don't know the story, just look up the Why Hope I Three. <laughs> that'll that'll tell you the story. And I just I asked Adrian not out of, of a facetious point, but really link, looking at the real world applications. When he took that spy base down. Theoretically, there might have been information that didn't get to this guy who was sitting in Iraq, who was now sitting opposite him, that might have caused him serious trouble. And I think looking at the bigger, broader picture, I mean, what do we, when is military intervention okay, um, if ever? When do we fight back, if ever? And from a peace activist point of view, how do you how do you think about those things? You know, when do you ever fight back if someone pushes, kicks your front door and wants to take your tally? When do you push back? Oh gosh, <laughs> I think that's kind of mixing up quite a few different things there. Um, when you talk about, you see, the thing about the intelligence that we gather at Waihopai, yeah, we know from Edward Snowden that they've got this program now called X Key Store or something, and that means that they can zero in on particular words and filter out right. information using this incredibly sophisticated system. But we also know that New Zealand has no say over all the information that's collected at Waihopai. Right. It's it's full take. So... <laughs> so we, it's buying on us as well, and our government and all of our own stuff. Well, that's a slightly controversial point, isn't it? You remember when the laws were extended because it was discovered that 88 people had been, 88 right. New Zealanders had been included in the take of information. That came out through WikiLeaks. So um, we never found out who they were. None of them were ever charged with any crime or anything. So, mm -hmm. yeah, But yeah, it, as a result of that, the legislation was extended to, to make it, I think I'm right, to make it possible for some of that information from New Zealand to be used. But... Regardless of all that, I think the key thing is that we don't have any say over how that intelligence is used. When you say we, said. you mean us and our government on behalf of us? Yes, our yeah, government okay. on behalf of us. So we don't know, for example, whether some of the satellites that Waihopai is scooping up information from mm. could actually be zeroing in on somebody's cell phone. Right. And we've got no control. You know, one of the things we did find out through the leaks and so on was that one of the groups that had been spied on was an anti-corruption activist mm -hmm. in the Solomon Islands. So is the one person in the world you don't want his confidential information to be known about it's somebody who's working in an anti-corruption way, surely? So let's ask two questions. I might have been a bit you know, long-winded before. When is it okay to gather data, in your opinion, information secretively? If, if at all, maybe you'll mm. say never, but when is it okay like when is it okay for a government or an agency that is um, charged with whatever, safety, security, military, when is it okay for them to gather, gather data? Uh, I wouldn't agree to any unaccountable agency gathering data about New Zealand people. And I do see our GCSB and our SIS is largely unaccountable mm -hmm. to the people. We... We only know when years later we're asked to see our SIS file or something and some of it's released to us and then we realise, you know, that there were infiltrators in our meetings and mm -hmm. so on. What right. does that do to democracy? So you've had people infiltrate your... I mean, obviously there was a, a French spy back in the day, <laughs> but since then have you found that there's been people involved well, with um, your organisations, your meetings, who maybe were there for nefarious reasons? I was one of those people around about 2008, they were relatively free about uh, letting people see their SIS files, mm -hmm. it's sort of clamped down again since, so I have my SIS file, Keith has his SIS file, we can trace that through and see that some of the information on that file can only have been gained by people sitting on, on small meetings of organisations wow. that we were part of. So I've got no track with that. Um, an agency like 
the police mm. is more accountable to us okay. than these secretive spying agencies. So, so. If, the, if the police were investigating something and they had to gather data, you'd be more comfortable with that than, for example, the SIS? If, if, if there was a, yes, because there's a potential later on, isn't right. it, to question what was happened, right. to take it to a court and a right. judge okay. and see if they did it right so or it's wrong. So it's the accountability almost more so than the, than the surveillance? Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah. right, so what about the other long-winded question I asked before, <laughs> which was when, when's it okay to push back? From a peace activist point of view, when is it okay for a country to push, push back? And, but I would be interested to know as an individual, and I'm, I guess I'm meaning using force because that would be the opposite of a peaceful act. When is it okay, in your opinion, to push back as a private citizen? Ah, uh, That's... Yeah, I'd always put negotiation first, you know, negotiation. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so negotiations yeah. happened and it hasn't worked. Then what? Give me a bit more specific. <laughs> <laughs> someone someone kicks my door in and wants my TV. <laughs> Can I knock him out? <laughs> well, I mean, that's a genuine question. Someone wants uh, to steal something from me. Can yeah, I? but I think that's posed as a sort of therefore, therefore, therefore. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't like that chain of consequences very much you know okay why don't you frame something where you feel even though it may be um not desirable why don't you frame something to me where it's okay for an individual to use force like so an obvious one would be someone's attacking me with a knife Mm. I can knock mm. them out, surely. <laughs> and let me just say this, I've never punched anyone in my life. So this, <laughs> this is not coming from a, oh, I could knock him out. It's just, this is obviously genuinely um, theoretical. Yes. Um, you know, someone was attacking someone else, intervening on their behalf. I'm sure that's fine. Where's the line? I mean, it's a stupid question, I know, because there's kind of, a, it's a, how long is a piece of string? But where's the line? Is it when only when your personal... Safety is an issue, or someone else's personal safety? Is it defending your property? You know, for you, where where would do you have an opinion on that? Hmm. Yeah, I th- what what worries me is people sometimes take that argument and yeah. then on to oh well the state has it right. Sure. <laughs> and I think what I'm really looking at is the state. Our state has not acted in the best interests. It has not acted with all of us involved in making those decisions. Mm. It does not act, taking all our contributions into account. It acts It acts on the basis of secret agreements signed way back in mm. decades ago. Um, and force is not the way to solve international disputes. I, th- I think, you know, I'm, I'm finding it hard to come down from... The role of the state mm. in the international when, arena. So we talked about World War Two. So when Hitler invaded Poland, was it appropriate for a a military response to that from the people that call themselves the Allies? Yeah. Again, I don't think. Yeah, it's it's. I think I tend to be more on the side of the conscientious objectors, okay. really. Yeah, I think that the yeah, I, it's an issue that I've. Oh look, <laughs> and it's and look, there yeah. are some there are some religious teachers who tell you to turn the other cheek, and it's a question that I don't have I don't have an answer to these, and I'm not trying to trap anyone into think it's a genuine question, and this is the whole thing: just war versus pacifism. You mm-hmm. know, if someone was attacking my daughter, would I attack them back? Yes. If someone was attacking me, would I? Probably, if someone was attacking my car, would I? Mm. Probably not. Where, where is that? I, I don't, and I don't know. But the the conscientious objectors were asking, who will be our allies? Who will we work with? Will will we be doing things in the name of protecting yeah. New Zealand that that are wrong? You know, and we we were quite quickly. You know, we were in. Do we have to ask the question though, as well? Just come into the microphone a little bit there. Um, do we have to ask the question? And this is again a silly question because it didn't happen. But if everyone was a conscientious objector on on the quote unquote ally side, what would have happened? So we're talking about whether it was whether it was right or wrong to resist fascism. 
I guess if everyone was, if all the, the, the West, if all of the UK and America and all those places were all conscientious of the objectives, what would have happened? Does that mean that we, and I'll put my hand up when I say we, because I'm certainly in that camp of, you know, war is, you know, bad. <laughs> um, are, are we, is it one of these kind of first world luxuries because of what did happen that we can sit back and go, we can, we can object now, but if all those people hadn't gone and fought we might not have the luxury to object. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Might be too much of a theoretical conversation, but yeah. I mean, this is probably, you know, when we get down into, there's, there's no simple solution. There's absolutely no simple <laughs> solution, yeah. In 1940, New Zealand forces, some of them were in Egypt where there was a strong nationalist movement already, yeah. you know, trying to say we don't want to be under British imperial control. Whose side were we on? Mm. We were on the side still imposing imperial control in Egypt. So it's the way the Second World War is portrayed as being a war solely against fascism is mm. not the full story. You know Whether the conscientious objectors were right, whether it was important to defeat fascism and we had to use some military force it's something it's really hard to answer yeah, all yeah, these of years later and of course i think what we need to acknowledge is it's more complex and the conscientious objectives help us to understand that complexity yeah and that's a really important role that they played well i think maybe that's a pretty good spot to end i know that we said we we're going to wrap up by midday and it's pretty much midday Ooh. now just like that Aaron, Aaron, 20 minutes just flies Don't. by now the archibald baxter memorial peace lecture now this is a an annual lecture so you're doing this year's one um and you just to remind people if you are in dunedin uh today thursday the 20th 5 30 p.m at archway 2 lecture theater at otago university now just tell us before we uh take off um the book that's just come out where can people find it? What's oh, it called again? Well, I'm I'm speaking in Dunedin. My book is published by Otago University Press, and uh, it'll be available at good independent bookshops in Dunedin, and particularly the uh, university bookshop. Yep. <laughs> um, so it's called See No Evil: New Zealand's Betrayal of the People of West Papua. So, as we talked about earlier, if people want to learn more about that particular issue, get yes. the book. Get the book. Uh, look it up on the. Otago University Press website, yep. read about it, borrow it from the library, whatever. <laughs> well, buy, buy it. Buy it would be better. <laughs> All right, Mighty Ledbetter, thank you so much for coming and joining us. Thank you for being number one. Oh, number one in our hearts and our podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. So thank you very much. Okay. All right, so that's it. Number one, done and done and dusted, as they say. Uh, that was Mighty Ledbetter, um, amazing woman, actually, and, and amazing conversation thank you for downloading the very first podcast this is uh, podcast 001 i think that's what we'll call it i don't know we'll figure it out um we don't have a regular schedule for podcasts yet so please come and uh support us please come and subscribe to us on itunes like us on facebook as well and as these come up through the rest of 2018 you will be notified when you can download the next episode we're giving this a bit of a crack we're giving it a bit of a trial if we have content here that people want to hear, then it will become uh, a whole new thing in 2019 as well. So that's it. Done and dusted. Number one out of the way. Thanks again for joining us. And we will uh, see you shortly for whatever episode two is going to be. Hey, Ruth. <laughs>